ministry-wise. And I said, you know, I think we are having the best year in ministry that I have ever had here. I really do. I said, you know, God has been very good. We have a ton of new members uh, joined this year. I think, it's, I think we're at about 16, something like that, maybe 17 uh, at this point in the year. We baptized several people. The church is growing. Uh, we're really hopeful that we'll be able to add a, uh, a new elder here soon as well as a, a new associate pastor. Our ministries to our children and our youth and our adults are going well, and we're very blessed. And I just wanted to, first of all, I don't often say that kind of thing to you all. People do ask me, well, how is the church going and so forth? And I tell them, but I don't often tell you. And the church is going very well, and God has been very good to us. And it's because of you all that things are going well. You know, I have a role here to play, obviously, but the bulk of our ministry is done by each of you who serve here and minister here. Now, I remember Rick Rosetto used to ask, how many ministers do we have? So let me ask you, how many ministers have we got here this morning? <laughs> Raise your hand, y'all. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a minister. You're a minister. You may not know it, but you are. And you have the opportunity to minister God's grace in various forms as you, serve, as you serve Christ and serve one another and serve the people of our community. And uh, it really is a privilege to be with you and to be, be serving alongside you as we serve Christ together. So let me just say thank you. Thank you. It's a blessing. It really is. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to be part of the body of Christ here. Uh, some of the greatest stories in our culture, if you, if you look at our culture, the stories that, that our culture loves are about redemption. They're about men and women with a checkered past getting a second shot, another chance to do things right. Uh, I'm an Indiana boy, so one of my favorite movies is the movie Hoosiers. How many of y'all have seen it? Come on. Classic movie, best sports movie ever made, bar none. All right. Uh, it was shot in some, around some of the areas that I grew up in. It's, it's a fantastic movie. You can show it to your kids and not be embarrassed. It's great. And basically, the movie is about, it's a fictionalized account of the Milan miracle. Back in, back in the day, back when I was coming up, uh, they had single-class basketball in Indiana. In other words, there wasn't 1A, 2A, 3A, 4A, 5A, whatever. It was all... It was just a giant free-for-all tournament. And so it was theoretically possible for one of these tiny little no-name high schools from nowhere to beat the biggest school in the state. And in 1954, Milan High School, Milan, Indiana, beat a 5A high school from South Bend for the state championship. They only had like eight guys on the team total. Only 50 boys in the whole high school. And this, is, and this movie is about how this happened. And it's also about redemption. It's about how, a, how the coach, who was a former college coach, who lost his coaching job because he choked a player. And then he went into the, went into the Navy and spent, uh, spent over a decade in the Navy trying to escape his past, and finally he decides he's going to get another shot, and he gets it at this tiny little high school out in the middle of the cornfields in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. 
And along the way, he teaches the boys about discipline and about doing what is right. And he helps the, tr- the town drunk get dry. And then you have this fantastic moment at the end where they do the picket fence. Remember? And they make the shot, and they win the game. And it's a great story. And it's about how this, this coach experiences redemption. He gets a second chance to do it over and do it right. And everybody cheers. And you can eat two boxes of popcorn in that movie and not even know it. It's great, okay? Or some of, if you're one of my geeky friends, uh, you remember the original Star Wars movies. You remember those? I'm told they've made some others. I refuse to acknowledge those more recent ones. But the great ones were made back in the 70s and the 80s. You know, I saw the, I saw the very first one, Star Wars, Episode 4, right? The drive-in movie after church one Wednesday night. It was great. Uh, and you saw this stuff, and nobody had ever seen this. And you've got, you know, uh, you've got all the Starfighters and the TIE Fighters and the X-Wings and the Death Star and all this stuff. And it's great, right? And you've got Han Solo and C-3PO and R2-D2 and all these guys. Where's my son? He, he knows this stuff better than me. Uh, but really what these first three movies are about is about the redemption of Darth Vader. That's what they're about. Darth Vader is the guy, remember, you know, he comes in in a black coat. You know, he's got the black cloak, and he's got the helmet, and he's got the robot thing going on, you know. And, uh, and he's able to crush people to death by just, you know. And it's kind of a cool thing, right? And he is the guy who helps the emperor rise to power. And it's because of Darth Vader that they're under the empire, ruled by the evil emperor, right? But as the movies progress, his son is in the process trying to redeem his father until at the, very, at the very end of the third movie, The Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader literally overthrows the emperor, right? And everybody cheers. And Darth Vader dies in the attempt, and he becomes again, once again, Anakin Skywalker. Farm boy from Desert Planet of Tatooine, right? And he dies, and, you know, it's kind of that creepy moment where, you know, his son is seeing them off in the shadows there as a little ghost, and it's kind of weird. But, but the story arc is pretty cool about redemption, about a guy who did great evil, unspeakable evil, finally getting a chance to undo it and seeing it undone. And I think... Part of the reason those stories resonate with us is that there's something deep inside us in places we are uncomfortable talking about that we really know that we need redemption too. We need redemption too. And you hear people talk about it just a little bit when they say things like, you know, if I was 25 again, I would do this instead. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it that way. I told the students this week at youth group that I would go back and live my life over again if I could as long as I got to skip junior high. (laughs) Okay? Felt horrible in junior high, you know? You got 
all this stuff, weird stuff happening with your body. You get made fun of a lot by all and sundry of your friends, supposedly. Your body is awkward, and you, you know your legs are too long, and your feet are too big, and all that. And, and it's really a strange time, right? But you go, man, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't make some of the stupid choices that I made along the way. And a lot of us would like if we had an opportunity to do things over and make them right. And that is what our story in the book of Genesis is about today. It's about a brother who's messed a lot of things up, getting a second shot to do it over and do it right. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 44. We're going to look at Judah and his story and how Judah experiences redemption. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also shall be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, this is obviously a setup. Joseph and his brothers have all uh, eaten together. They've had this great meal. The, the brothers have come down to buy grain a second time, and, and just as before, they find their silver back in the mouth of their sacks. But this time it's a different setup because Joseph has, unbeknownst to all of his brothers, put his, his silver drinking cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. And that's important because Benjamin's the youngest brother. He's Joseph's full brother, the, the son of the same mother and father that, he, that Joseph himself has. You know, Jacob has four wives. This is the youngest son of Rachel, the wife that, J- that Jacob loves, Joseph's full brother. And the brother that Jacob was most reluctant to send down to Egypt because he was the last remnant of that part of his life. And I want to deal also with this bit about Joseph's divination cup first. I, you know, you may be thinking, what? 
divination, predicting the future with wine? What's the deal with that? Uh, I don't think that's actually something Joseph does. I think that's part of the story that he's telling on purpose. It's something that was commonly practiced in Egypt. On top of that, Joseph uh, is himself someone that God speaks to consistently through dreams, so he has no need to try and figure out the future by looking at the dregs in, the, in his wine glass. But it does give him a pretext for why he would miss this one particular cup out of all of the cups in his house. Joseph, remember, is grand vizier of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And so he would have had lots of silver cups in his house. But this gives him a reason for why he's missing one in particular soon enough for these folks to notice and to go after his brothers who have it. Um, you know, I mean, think about it like this. You know, if somebody walked into your house and took one of the glasses out of your cabinet, how long would it take you to notice? Well, in my house, it would take me probably a week at least, if then. Because we've got lots of glasses, and, you know, some of them match and some of them don't, and, you know, some of them have strawberry shortcake on them, and some of them, you know, have, you know, pheasants forever stuff on them, and, you know, there's just lots of different ones, right? And it would take me a while to notice. But this, this is part of the setup. It only makes sense if, it's, if this is a special cup in some way. And so he makes up a reason for its absence to be quickly noticed. And this is all a setup. This is a test to see if anything has changed. And I think it's all purely intentional. I think Joseph has been thinking of doing this ever since he first saw his brothers come down to Egypt to buy food months previously, the first time. Somehow he has to get his little brother Benjamin there, and otherwise he can't see how his brothers would act when put under pressure with reference to their little brother, who's the son of Rachel. And he wants to know, would the pressure of being arrested and Benjamin enslaved result in self-sacrifice by his brothers, or would they sacrifice Benjamin due to their jealousy over small things like how much food Benjamin got at dinner? Joseph did not know, and he couldn't know because he didn't want to reveal himself as the long-lost brother, though, until he did know for sure exactly how they would react. Uh, it's a little like the situation of these two brothers here recently. I don't know if you heard about this, about two brothers who just won the lottery, but they won five years ago. And they didn't cash the ticket in until a week before it expired because one of them was going to get married in about a week after he won, and another of them was doing some other thing. And they wanted to see how all that played out, and they didn't want the money to affect any of those relationships or those decisions. And so they waited five years to cash in their ticket. And this is a little like that. Joseph is second in command in the most powerful nation in the world. He has fabulous wealth. He has access to blessing for his family that is beyond imagination. But he doesn't want to give it out if nothing has changed in his brother's heart. And so he wants to see if they've learned to love each other. And he puts the, he puts the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, and, and they all get, all the brothers get arrested, and they are distraught. 
when they realize what has happened. Because remember what Jacob told them? If I send my son Benjamin down there with you, somehow I'm going to wind up minus Benjamin when you come back. And they have no reason to think that that's going to happen. And so they make these gigantic promises. Oh, the one who has your cup will die, and all the rest of us will be your slaves, because we're honest men. Are they honest men? No, not really. But they don't have the silver cup, at least as far as they know. But they do. And it's discovered with Benjamin. And I think Joseph wants them to feel the unfairness of all of this. Of being innocent and yet being condemned. And on top of that, he wants to find out if they still feel the same hatred for Rachel's son that they felt for Joseph and the same disregard for the feelings of their father as they have exhibited continually over the last 20-some years. I mean, think about this. You've got this enormous secret. You've borne this guilt all this time, and you have not, never told your father the truth. You know, as I got older, you know, we got past the age where mom and dad could take a switch to us. We did tell them about some of the stuff that we did as kids that they never knew about. I don't know if any of you have ever done that or not. But hey, remember that time I meant to tell you what really happened, right? And of course, then you can laugh about it, right? But they've never told the old man what really happened to Joseph. They've let him believe all this time. And so they all head back with Benjamin to Joseph to plead their case. Let's look at see what happens. <coughs> When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So Joseph confronts his brothers. And once again, they bow to the ground in, in front of him in fulfillment of that long ago dream. But meanwhile, Joseph is acting every bit the offended ruler. Don't you know that a man like me has the ability to do these things? And it's all part of the act, but it's all very convincing. And Judah speaks up, essentially saying, look, we've got no defense. And, and again, notice how Judah has become the family leader here. The guy who was first to suggest selling Joseph into slavery is now the guy who speaks up for everybody else and offers all of them, including himself, up as slaves. And the reason for that is he believes that his long-ago sin against Joseph has finally caught up with all of them. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. In other words, I know what goes around comes around. And surely God is holding us to account. 
And surely God intends for us to all be slaves because we sold our brother for some silver into slavery. And so now through a silver implement, we're becoming slaves. That's what he thinks. And well, Benjamin, you know, he's the one with the cup, so he's guilty too. And Joseph's response is interesting. He says, oh, no, 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 far be it for me to do that. But Benjamin, that boy, he's going to be my slave because he knows the importance of Benjamin to old Jacob. And he also knows his brothers, and he wants to find out what sort of men they are now. Are they going to abandon Benjamin, or are they going to stick with him because he's their brother? What are they going to do? Let's find out. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord answered his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one from me and harm happens to him, you will bring, my, bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I have fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, look at this. Judah is a changed man. He is now pleading with his brother for Benjamin's freedom. He retells the whole story, how Joseph requested to see the youngest brother, how Benjamin was eventually allowed to go, but only if he took responsibility for him. He also explains how Jacob's life is wrapped up in Benjamin's life and how if something happens to Benjamin, that something very likely will happen Jacob as well. He's the only surviving son of the woman he loved. And somehow Judah has made his peace with the fact that he and his brothers are not the favorite sons of their father. And so it's at this moment, this pivotal moment, when the man who is in many ways was the worst of his brothers is now the best 
of them. He who has long lived as a Canaanite is now about to live as part of the redeemed. He who sold his, his younger brother, the oldest son of Rachel, into slavery in Egypt is now willing himself to go into slavery in Egypt for the sake of Rachel's youngest son. He's been transformed. And he who would give his life, he would, who would give someone else's life away for putty, petty jealousy once upon a time is now the man, the man who is willing to lay down his life for somebody else's. And I don't know exactly how this transformation took place in Judah's heart. The text doesn't tell us precisely, but here's what I do know. that some combination of learning wisdom and grace from the wreckage he has made of his life and the power of guilt and regret have shaped him. And they have, they have had an impact. And Joseph's tests that he's put all of his brothers through have also had an impact. And they've reminded him of his, knees, his, his need for change. And most of all, I think the Lord has been at work in Judah's life and in his heart. If anything, you know, Judah has a lot more colorful past than most of us. I don't know if, I don't know, any of you ever been amateur slave traders? Okay, don't raise your hand. All right. Uh, he has a lot more colorful past than most of us. Uh, any of you ever um, gone to prostitutes? You know, that's Judah. Okay? Prostitute he went to was his daughter-in-law, of all people. He has a colorful story. But only God can take an amateur slave trader, a man who sold his own brother, and make him willing to be a slave for his brother. Only God can do that. Only God can transform somebody's heart from a selfish, jealous, nasty person into a person who's willing to lay his life down that somebody else might go free. And I think, you know, as I think about this text and how it relates to us, I think about the fact that we serve the same God as Judah did. And that he is also at work transforming us. And sometimes we think of God, you know, the God that we worship and we serve and whose book we read and whose name we proclaim as we sing. We think of him as the God of second chances. You know, he's the God of second chances. Well, actually, it's better than that. Remember what he told Peter, what Jesus told Peter when Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? You know, the rabbi said you only had to forgive somebody six times, so Peter added one and thought he was being really good. And, and Jesus said, no, no, uh, 70 times seven. In other words, 490. Now, does he mean that, you know, you have to forgive somebody... Up to 489, but on 490, you can slug them? No. Okay? He does not mean that. What he means is, is that you're not to keep track. You're to offer forgiveness as God offers forgiveness, freely and without keeping score. He's the God who specializes in allowing his children to start over no matter what they've done, even if it's far more than 70 times 7 with the same sin. He's the, he's the God who is 
the ultimate alchemist who turns our sinful lead into spiritual gold. He is the one who enables us through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection through the Holy Spirit's renewing, redeeming power to make those who are slaves into sons. Those who have given their life over to sin and take them and enable them to give their life over to him. He's the God of redemption. And I invite you this morning to experience redemption for yourself. Many of you who are sitting here this morning have already experienced the redemption that comes to people at salvation. And it's great. And it's amazing. That God would take somebody like me and like you and adopt them into his family despite everything they have done, despite everything that they will do, even as believers sometimes. And to take us and adopt us as his children. And to give us an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which will never perish, spoil, or fade. A lot of us have experienced that, but we get beat down along the way as we live our life. And we a lot of times feel weighed down and burdened by our sin. And you wonder at times if this is the abundant life Jesus promised because you feel like you can't go back. You can't go back to the throne of grace dragging again that same sin that you've confessed at least 490 times. God, forgive me for my temper. God, forgive me for the way I talk. God, forgive me because I saw that girl and I looked with lust for the millionth time. God, forgive me for the way I spoke to my husband. God, forgive me for the way that I treated my wife, my child, my boss, whatever. And it's easy to feel beat down and to wind up carrying a big bag of guilt, even as a believer in Christ. And if that describes you, I want to just tell you that redemption is waiting for you at the cross. That you can carry your stuff up to the Lord and say to him, even if it's the millionth time, Lord, it's me again. And I got some more stuff I need to leave here and have it be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and experience through the same power which raised Jesus from the dead, the new life in your heart once more. And to say, Father, forgive me. I knew what I was doing and I knew it was wrong and I knew it was displeasing to you. But I did it anyway because I still have rebellion in my heart. Please forgive me. And to experience that redemption and forgiveness again. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I give you rest, he says. Go to Jesus. Find redemption once more for your soul. On the other hand, I know that some of you in this room have never experienced redemption even for the first time. And you wonder if it's there for you in the first place. You're going, well, that all sounds really good, but I don't know what you're talking about. 
I've never experienced that. I've never known what it's like to be really and truly and completely clean in the sight of God. I've never, I don't know what that is. And can I just share with you the wonderful news that it is available for you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to die on the cross for sin, and not just for my sin, not just for the sin of the really nice people, not just for the sin of people who look like me or act like me or fit in the same socioeconomic group or nationality or ethnicity or whatever, but for the sins, the Scripture tells us, of the entire world. For the amateur slave trader, for the John, for the prostitute, for the drug dealer, for the wife beater, for the drug addict, for the abuser, for everybody. For everybody. Not just for the whole world, but for every bad, nasty, ugly, gross person in it. Every one of us. Jesus Christ came to redeem the whole big, bad, ugly, nasty world. Including everything that we've done, everything we've left undone about which we are deeply ashamed. He died for everything that we would go back and do over if we had the chance. He is the ultimate son of Judah. He died for everything that we would do. He willingly took our place, though we were the ones who were caught red-handed. He was innocent and we were guilty. He's the one who willingly lays down his life that we might go free and return to the Father who loves us more than we can imagine. And if you've never found that kind of redemption, you've never found that, let me invite you to find it today. Let me invite you to find it today for the first time. By putting your trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin as your substitute, who took the penalty that you deserved because you were the one who was caught. You were the one with all the evidence that you were carrying around in your sack. And Jesus came and stood before his father and said, Though he is guilty, I will take his place. Though he should be enslaved and punished, I will take his place that he might return free. He died on the cross to set us free from our sin. And he was raised from the dead to give us new life. That we could be completely, totally clean. That we could feel that cleansing in our heart that only Christ gives. That we could be transformed by our brother, Jesus Christ. He went through testing that we might be saved. He went through death that we might have life. He experienced life as among the lowest of the low that we might be adopted into the very family of God. He laid down his life for you and for me. And if you've never experienced the redemption that Jesus offers, can I invite you to experience it today through faith in him? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I know there are many here who have a big old bag of guilties. 
a giant chain around their ankle like Marley in a Christmas carol of all the things that they have done in this life of which they're deeply ashamed. Father, I pray that if they are a, a person who's never experienced redemption, that they would come to the one who breaks the lock and sets us free from our chain and welcomes us into your family. Father, I pray they would put their faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he died on the cross for them and was raised from the dead to give them new life and that they might experience the transformation and healing that comes through faith in Christ. And Father, for those of us who, though we are your children, still have at times rebellious hearts that run away from you, Father, I pray that you would bind our wandering heart to you and that you would help us to return and to be forgiven and to experience redemption even again today. Not that we have lost our salvation, Father, but we we'll sometimes lose the joy of it as we get wrapped up in sin. Father, may you restore our joy. May you forgive our sin as we confess it to you. And may you set us free from it to live for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.